When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. I was really looking forward to talking to University of Cambridge political theorist John Donne about democracy because it was a chance to engage in some straight talk with one of the world's most recognized political theorists, a member of the so-called Cambridge School of Political Thought and one of the foremost authorities on John Locke, about a concept around which so much confusion and sloppy thinking is so regularly present. And while I'd never met John before, I knew from his books that he had a uniquely refreshing tendency to cut right to the chase. That sort of thing is always welcome, of course, but when it comes to a topic that's as distorted and muddled as democracy so often is, it was definitely an opportunity not to be missed. Suffice it to say that he didn't disappoint. You've been talking about democracy for, uh, for some time, and you've been writing about democracy for some time. And in your recent lectures, you, you've been explicitly talking about breaking democracy's spell, the spell of democracy, the veil of democracy. What are you talking about here? What do we mean by this? Why is, why is this an important thing to be concerned with? Well, it's an important thing to be concerned with because democracy as a word and an idea has a, a unique political force in the world. And it's a, an awful lot of um, people's political responses are in the end organized in one way or another in response to its presence. I mean, of course, they're not caused by it being present, but it it affects the way they're expressed, and it constrains the way they can be expressed in lots of ways. And I've become convinced. I got interested in it in a way pretty accidentally. It wasn't because I had uh, some special insight. But, but, I, but And I have spent a lot of time thinking about it and trying to understand what's been happening in it. And I think I've understood something very important about it, which isn't generally understood, um, which is how it's come about that it is so prominent and that it has the sort of effect it does have on people's political comprehension. People can only understand politics through ideas, and they can't understand it just by looking or smelling. And the the ideas they try to understand it through mostly don't help very much in for understanding it. And very many of them are very actively impede understanding it, and are meant to impede understanding of it. But if I'm an American. And I'm, I'm sitting here listening to this, and I say, but I know what democracy is, and I know democracy is a, 
an important thing. I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's what my uh, republic was based on. I might even think it was a motivating force in the generation of my republic. And I think it's, it's all, it's the right way to, to do politics, and it's the way that uh, uh, we should move forward and enlighten the rest of the world. That's a fairly, maybe I'm being presumptuous, that's a fairly common view that I think your average American might have. We should export democracy to the rest of the world. We should encourage other people to be democratic. So, and you, Mr. Dunn, what, what's, what's your problem? Are you an anti-democrat somehow? You're, you don't believe in democracy? What is all this talk about breaking the spell of democracy and so forth and, and changing my views? Why should, I, why should I pay attention to that? Well, you should pay attention to it because your views are wrong. And, I mean, that's the best reason for paying attention um, to someone if, you're, if <laughs> your views are, are what's in question. Um, and I, I don't uh, think that I can show you exactly what the right views for you are, because that depends a lot on you, and it depends on what actually you are concerned with, and it depends on, um, I mean, the very complicated judgments about the world, which you shouldn't take on trust from me, or actually from anyone else in particular. Right. But w what is definitely true, is that the way Americans think about democracy is very, very grievously mistaken. And it's mistaken in a number of different ways. First of all, it isn't true, historically, the story you've just recited to me. It isn't true the American Republic was founded on the idea of democracy. It, the, the, the American founders were extremely skeptical right. of democracy as a word and they thought it referred to a very bad form of government. And they very actively and militantly argued against allowing anything which was appropriately described with that word to operate in the United States. There are one or two momentary exceptions. The most striking of them was something which Alexander Hamilton once said, Alexander Hamilton is normally regarded by American historians as the most sort of spectacularly anti-democratic uh, political agent and political thinker in the history of the United States. And as someone who built the United States as a state to prov that uh, had uh, all the wrong purposes. Uh, 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 in the sense, you know, some of the regrettable capabilities um, for it, or some capabilities which were regrettable for it to be a democracy, because a democracy in that, that sense is a sort of soft, decent, responsive structure um, which cares for everyone and uh, cares for everyone equally, and it um, is liable to be paralyzed because of its cares and not to be very effective at doing anything. And Alexander Hamilton started off in the opposite direction, really. He started off from the question of how can you make the United States into a strong enough state to actually protect itself and thrive in a world in which it will very often be living with what are essentially competitors and enemies. And the United States that emerged the United States, which for a time was very clearly the most powerful state in the world, and is still, you know, the most powerful state in the world by, by a sort of receding margin for a variety of reasons. Uh, the United States that came about was the sort of state, very broadly speaking, that Hamilton had in mind, not at all the sort of state that 
some of the other founders had in mind. But Hamilton did at one point call the United States that he, he was attempting to generate a representative democracy. But um, he didn't uh, call it that in the context of arguments about what it should be like. Mm -hmm. He just used the phrase. Um, and a lot of what is said by the most intellectually powerful and politically influential founders about democracy is straightforwardly dispraise. And if you look at something like the Electoral College, for example, uh, which comes into prominence every so often when there's a sense of uh, there's the specter of some president perhaps uh, winning the Electoral College without winning the popular vote, there, there's an acknowledgement, there should be an acknowledgement of the fact that the founders framed a system that was not manifestly overtly uh, democratic, or at least aligned in that particular direction. Well, it, it was intended to prevent certain bad things happening, which democracy as a political thought form was believed to make particularly likely or right. completely inevitable. So you can see it's a muddled way to think about the relationship between what those people were trying to do right. uh, and democracy to say the United States Republic was built as a democracy and to be a democracy. It just wasn't. Um, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, what I think is very important about American political beliefs about this word um, is that, that those beliefs are based on the idea that there is a correct way to understand democracy, which is the way Americans do understand democracy, and that that way is the name of their own political institutions and that these political institutions are, the, in principle, the correct political institutions for everyone, if only everyone could become civilized enough to be governed in a decent and um, uh, honorable way. I mean, it's the, it's the American recipe right. for how to act. Now, that is... Uh, that's certainly not what the idea of democracy means in any coherent understanding, either of uh, its historical sources and trajectory uh, or of what the idea itself could possibly mean. The idea couldn't possibly mean the Americans have a way of doing something which is the way for everyone to do it, irrespective of how everyone else thinks and feels and believes. Right. And of and course, the, uh, democracy <coughs> means that in any place, uh, if, if the idea does apply, what will be true is that the people of that place decide what they want and can, can be guaranteed that that will be what happens. That's a very demanding idea. It doesn't plausibly get um, realized anywhere ever. <coughs> But it's um, less sort of obviously false in some settings at some times than it is in others at other times. Just to take a very important recent example, if you look at, um, at Gaza, the Gaza bit of um, Palestine, um, the, 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 most, um, the most striking single example of a democratic choice um, was the victory of <clears throat> a political party or a religious movement or both, um, which um, w was a, 
a catastrophic outcome from the point of view of American interests and you know, presumptively anyway from an Israeli point of view, majority Israeli point of view, a, a terrible threat to the future of Israel, a very close American ally. There's no doubt whatever that the, that, that particular political and religious um, organization won that election. Sure. Uh, I mean, that was a, it wasn't, uh, it didn't satisfy conditions for being a free and um, choice in, uh, with open deliberation or anything like that, but it certainly was the, 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 the body that m more people wished to win, yes. and that's why it did win. Um, and, I mean, democracy says that should be the outcome. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's not true that the Americans have an understanding of this idea which is transparent to them and which should be shared by everyone. And, of course, this idea itself is not an American idea in origin. You have traced in, in your books, uh, many people have traced different histories and different origins of this, but, but most people certainly attribute the, the primary origin back to Athenian uh, Greece and, and ancient Greece. Um, and it seems to me in, in reading your books and in listening to your lectures, you make it very clear that not only is there a tremendous amount of superficiality that's invoked with this word of democracy, which means all different things. There's a muddle that means different things to different people at different times. Um, so you, a, a, a clear aspect of what, uh, what you're trying to convey, at least for me as a reader, is that you have to look very carefully. You have to get beyond pat phrases. You have to understand the history of this particular word and the concepts behind it and how they achieve some measure of ascendancy. And one thing in, in particular you look at is the actual etymology of the word democracy and how it has changed and how it has evolved. Why do you do that? Well, it's because you can follow a word very, very precisely. You can go wherever the word's been and has left traces and you can see it and you can look at what was happening in and through it. What that word refers to, you can't see in the same way. You have to work it out. <laughs> and, that, and actually it's quite difficult to work it out. Uh, you, can, you can begin to work it out if you pay close attention, but you can't be quite sure you've got it right. But you can follow the word and try to understand what is happening in it. And if you do, you find something which is quite surprising to most people today, because as a result of a particular set of um, imaginative and practical shifts in the world over the last 250 years or so, one of the forms of government as they were understood in the ancient world, there were three forms of government basically, there was another sort of more sophisticated and complicated idea as well, but there were three clearly distinguished forms of government. There was government by the demos, which didn't usually actually mean everyone, in fact never meant everyone in the ancient world, but it, 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 meant, it meant lots and lots of people who those who had previously been governing thought poorly of. Uh, and who'd been, you know, less powerful and poorer than those who thought poorly of them. Um, and the, the idea of the demos, the idea of the people, whoever they were, the idea of the citizens, that was an idea which could be opened very widely. And the, 
the point of it was to open from the other two forms of government. It was a contrast idea. The other two forms of government, unsurprisingly, were monarchy, or usually disrecommended. So it came out as you know the unpleasant and you know destructive rule of a single person. Um, tyranny, as the Greeks called it, another word which was stuck around, um, or aristocracy, which meant the, the rule of those who were entitled to look down on most people and who should be allowed to do unimpededly what they wanted because they were so obviously superior. Now, in the course of the last 200 years or so, the, the um, 250 years or so, the, um, the, the form, the very open form of democracy has been a very much more successful political competitor than the other two forms. And it's very easy to see why. It, it's, it appeals to more people and it, uh, it was meant, always meant to appeal to more people it doesn't have any sort of natural edge to its potential appeal um, within what might possibly be politically active components of the human population. It's wide open to all comers. The other two are meant to be, and are obviously, in fact, where, closed against sure. most comers. So sure. you, you, there was a, it wasn't surprising that the battle in the end came out that way, but it didn't come out that way until relatively recently, historically. Um, and during the period of time in which, before, the long period of time before, there weren't very many passages of European history in which, in any, anywhere at all, um, democracy as, the, as a way of thinking about what a political regime was, was the prevalent political and social form. And it took some transformations in economic organization to make it possible for anything which could be so called and so and organized through um, the idea of being open to all to be established and secured and, and perpetuated. Today, in a lot of places in the world, we have political forms which which purport to be uh, structures in which all, all adults are equal and all adults have equal power because all adults should have equal power. And the political outcomes of governmental processes are chosen and controlled by everyone equally. Now that isn't even vaguely true of anywhere. Right. And it, it doesn't take a lot of attention to what's going on anywhere in the world to see how far from the truth it is. But the, the, the term which means that that's what should be true has been the term that won the competition between ideas of how politics should be shaped. And the ways in which that term has been institutionalized and interpreted and used over the last 250 years or so, and increasingly uh, over the last um, 75 years or so, um, the, the big 
forward push of democracy is a post-Second World War push. In, in, in the period between the, first of all, there were, there were extremely few things which looked at all like democracies by this criterion in the world in 1914. And between 1918 and 1939, different dates in different bits of Europe, what was going on, on the whole, was democracy clearly politically failing and foundering and going other, going under to various forms of tyranny. Sure. Some, some of them with quite a high degree of popular support. So you could say, and, I, and of course there's a lot of political equivocation about this. I mean, even the Nazis, who Hitler was very explicitly anti-democratic, but actually the Nazis claimed to be the representatives of the German people, to be speaking for the German people, as the German people. <laughs> What's the German people? Well, it's the German for demos. So it's not as though, it's not as though even the, um, it's not as though even the more sort of popular tyrannies, popular for a bit anyway, tyrannies, tyrannies which, you know, did enjoy a certain kind of majority support, or anyway, some majority resignation uh, with traces of approval in it. They, they weren't just enemies of the idea that political power should be organized for a set of people. And democracy is that idea, and it's an idea in which you can see that the project is one which has very wide appeal, right. just as you can see that uh, realizing the project is a pretty forlorn enterprise. And you can, I think, and should, in my view, uh, think of democracy as a, a way of as an idea, as a way of interrogating what the political life of your own society is actually like, what is really happening in it, and how far away it is from that particular um, picture of how things should be, and what it is exactly that causes it to be so far away. That is a very powerful way of inquiring into the political reality of your own society, and it's a way which is open to very deep critical um, elaboration. So, so it can it can serve people very well, but it can only do so if they um, use it to do that, and to use it to do that, they have to understand what is actually inside it, as other people are using it. So, so this this brings out two points. I mean, it seems to me there are two different things that are happening. There is the sense of the the. A potential peril of democracy as, as reducing to mob rule. And you mentioned Hitler and you mentioned the will of the people. And of course, one can have a political system which faithfully represents the will of the majority of people and still do all sorts of horribly egregious things and be morally unjust and, and be, uh, be opprobrious and be, be a despotic, nefarious system which should be eliminated. So the idea that you are necessarily representing the will of the people does not necessarily imply that you have good governance or appropriate governance or moral governance or just governance or anything like that. And there's something else that you had mentioned, which is this, as you talk about the etymology and the development of the word, one of the things which has long frustrated me and I'm sure many other people who 
make no pretensions of being political scientists or political scholars, is this strange conflation of this word democracy. So we understand democracy as a way of uh, setting up our, our society so that we choose our rulers in a particular way. But there's also, nowadays, if you, if you listen to the word democracy being thrown around in the radio or television or in the, in the popular consciousness, there's an understanding that it necessarily refers to the rule of law. There's an understanding that it's necessarily conflated with capitalism and the capitalistic system and so forth. And logically, analytically, intelligently, as you've pointed out, these things are actually very distinct. They have really nothing to do with one another. The way one decides to choose one's rulers does not logically have anything to do with the rule of law and whether it's upheld in your society. It does not logically have anything necessarily to do, unless you define it otherwise, with your particular economic system and, and what have you. And nowadays, all of, these word, or all of these connotations seem to come out when you actually throw that word out there, which makes much more of a muddle of, of what we're actually talking about. Um, is, that, is that a fair assessment, or is that...? Yes, no, I think it's all true, and I think it's, uh, it's particularly conspicuously and um, disastrously true in, in the American rendering, right. because it, it is true that Americans find it extremely difficult to believe that the idea of democracy isn't somehow or other uh, very tightly connected indeed with the idea of the rule of law, very tightly indeed connected with the idea of civil liberties, personal liberties, and very tightly indeed connected with the institutional structures of a capitalist society. And they view those structures in a very uncritical and very um, obtuse way. I mean, they don't understand the structures to any significant degree. Um, so, I, I mean, they conflate things which are actually very often fairly close to being straightforwardly contradictory. Not, they're not just that they don't actually go adhesively together. Actually, they don't go together at all. The idea that you could have a, a world of political equals, which was also a world of very, very drastic economically unequals, doesn't make causal sense. Right. It can't be true. There can't be such a world. And there jolly well isn't. Um, so, and actually, the idea that... Um, there is a guarantee of civil liberties in doing what the majority of a population wants to be done at a particular time is, is incoherent. I mean, civil liberties, if they are guaranteed by a legal structure and by a constitutional order, are guaranteed by their potential robustness in the face of whatever the current political preferences are. Right. I mean, so these ideas don't fit together. Right. You're guaranteeing the, the, the freedom from persecution of minorities. You're guaranteeing the, the ability for, for people who might have a dissenting view or dissenting voice or dissenting or, 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 or different perspective or perhaps look different or, or whatever, the, the freedom and the, and the ability to be able to represent themselves as a member of the majority would, presumably. Yes. Well, I think that the, the, the key point is that there are a very large number of different political bads. Many of the political bads can be understood very easily. And all of these ideas are, in a way, recipes or, uh, against particular political bads. 
I mean, very general recipes, of course, but some of the bads are pretty general if you want to think about them that way. Um, but actually, there can't be one structure which guarantees against all political bads. I mean, if, if you think there might be, then you just have lost the plot. I mean, you don't have any idea what you're trying to think about. You right. just have no picture of right. what the world is like or could be like. I mean, you're not, your thinking doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and it is, uh, it's, it's important in the way I try to think that, that I believe that, because um, it's the motive of the way I try to think, that I believe people would be in some deep and um, steady sense better off if they understood better what was going on. If you think that isn't true, and there are some quite sort of intellectually grand versions of, uh, uh, of views of why it isn't true. I mean, there have been very powerful, in a sense, sort of political defenses of just the right distribution of ignorance and impotence. Um, you know, the ignorance of those who disagree with our picture and the impotence of those who might obstruct our realizing our picture. Um, I mean, those, those stories can be very, very powerful intellectually. They can show a world, things about a world, in a very sharp way. But I don't agree with their political implications. I think their political implications are wrong. I think it is a good thing for power to be more equally sure. distributed amongst human beings, because human beings are very dangerous to one another potentially, and they're of severely limited imaginative sympathy with one another, and they are of at least equally limited generosity towards one another, um, sort of in an undifferentiated form. I mean, most people can be generous to a few people, um, and most people have some glimmerings of comprehension of some other people, but we don't and can't understand other people in gross, and we can't know anything about them, we can't see them, and we can't begin to sort of fathom what's really going on in them, and we don't really care anyway. So it's just true that human beings are, you can't, it doesn't make sense to trust all other human beings to be your friend and to care for you and to know how to care for you. It doesn't make any sense at all. So, so democracy is, is in that sense, as a, the idea that everyone would actually be rather safer if they under, well, not absolutely everyone, the very powerful people probably wouldn't be as safe as they are now, but that almost everyone would be very much safer if they had a better understanding of what is going on and why it is going on. So we can't tar you with the elitist brush, that you're, you're someone who is uh, opposed to democracy in principle because you don't believe that people should be trusted with, with, uh, with ruling appropriately. But let me, I want to get back well, to that. Let me just say one thing about that, because this is a very classical point. I mean, what I think is precisely that people who rule are not good candidates for being trusted, and that how good candidates they are for being trusted matters very much more than the question of how good candidates for being trusted most of us are. So there's a political point which is very memorably expressed by John Locke at one point about the idiocy of putting yourself 
completely at the mercy of people whose um, purposes you have no reason whatever to trust. That's a very strong political point. If you take that political point and run with it, you might end up with an idea rather like democracy. You wouldn't end up with the view that it was a you know, very effective uh, safety guarantee, because there aren't any very effective safety Perhaps guarantees, it. but you'd end up with the thought that that's more politically the right sort of shape. But isn't that more of a, you know, Churchill had this famous line that, uh, that, that democracy was the, the, the worst form of government other than all the others that had been uh, tried from time to time, this, this sort of idea. But, but I, I do want to get back to that. But first, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the American. We've picked on this poor, poor naive American who has conflated all sorts of ideas with democracy, who is triumphantly talking about exporting democracy over the borders, making everywhere like the recipe of America and so forth. Um, and much as I like to beat up on Americans, uh, I think that, that, uh, that, that perhaps we should, uh, one should temper that with, with the, uh, the assessment that you made, which I thought was actually quite astute. Because you, you mentioned that there seems to be a, a, a weird dichotomy that actually happens uh, within the American body politic, or even the average American fellow on the street, uh, which is this idea that there is this, there is, yes, there is this naive sense of we have to make sure we have the recipe for how societies should be structured, and we should see if we can enlighten the rest of the poor enlightened masses throughout mankind as to how this should be done, and we should export our democracy and our view of the world and so forth to all the people, and that's an American mission, and, and I'm being a little bit stereotypical, but I, I think in gross that's, that's not a bad description of some of the uh, rather insulting and, 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 uh, and naive views that, that many Americans have. But at the same time, you point out that most Americans are actually very sophisticated, very critical of the shortcomings and failures of their own political system, certainly do not look themselves, at, uh, uh, do not look at the world as if they are being ruled uh, by, by remarkably astute, uh, irrev irrevocably correct individuals who, who always seem to make the right decisions. And so there's almost this, this, this bipolar nature that when they look at themselves, they can be very critical, very astute, very sensitive to transgressions, certainly don't think that they're living in some panacea, very skeptical, very cynical, but at the same time, they're able to actually um, think quite naively and quite superficially about this notion of, extor uh, of exporting democracy. And, and does this, is this something which you think is, uh, is reflective of, is this a particularity of Americans themselves? Or is this, is this weird dichotomy something that is perhaps a universal aspect of the human condition? I think it's quite possible that, that any state which was very, very powerful and had been very powerful for quite a long time um, and had been very little threatened, really, from the outside, um, would become overconfident about its own merits. And uh, I think it's perfectly possible that in, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily going to occur, of course, but it's perfectly possible that in 50 years' time, the Chinese will have as um, distorted and objectionable a picture of the relationship between their own political system. I think they have to change it quite a lot for that to be plausible for them, but it's not what they think now. But um, 
I don't think any of them really think that now, but it might be true that in 50 years' time, you know, if China does very well, it might be true that they just think that they've always been the really civilized place in the world, and, and uh, now they have the power, and they've always known more or less how to do things. They've sort of changed the, um, the wiring a bit along the way, but they've always, they've always really got it right. And they may end up, if that happens, uh, addressing the world in, in, with the same sort of arrogance and, um, <laughs> and, and incomprehension uh, of, of the reality of most of it that, that Americans now exhibit. But does the rise of China, you think, does, does, that, uh, does that cause Americans, is that causing Americans, does the rise of China economically cause Americans to perhaps second guess to some extent? their perhaps naive triumphalist view of their recipe? Well, I don't think it does yet. I mean, it certainly causes lots of Americans who you know, are aware of what's going on to be pretty anxious about America's economic future. And that, that's, I mean, how optimistic you are about that depends quite a lot on your degree of ideological self-confidence, because if your degree of ideological self-confidence is not very high, and you have to derive your expectations from what's been happening to, to the United States as a political structure interacting with its economy for the last um, um, 10 years or so. I mean, you, you, you need to be very sanguine to be, to be optimistic. I mean, you need to have really a very you know, robust temperament because it, it doesn't uh, look as though the relationship between United States political processes, call them democratic, um, since Americans do, between United States democratic political processes and United States economic functioning. It doesn't look as though that's going at all well. Right. And it doesn't look or feel to the great majority of the American population as though it's going at all well. It looks pretty good if you look at it from right at the top. It looks pretty ghastly if you look at it from right at the bottom. Most states look pretty ghastly if you look at them right from the bottom. Um, but um, it has shifted very sharply from a, a shape in which quite a large proportion of America's population felt that they were doing well because, in fact, their economic position had improved substantially over decades to one in which quite a large proportion, I mean more than half, um, quite a lot more than half actually, are very well aware that that just hasn't been true for a long time. Right. You make this interesting point, and, and again this is uh, in, in many of your books, you, you make this very, in my mind, obvious distinction, but a distinction sadly which needs to be made between the process of how one chooses one's rulers and whether or not one has been effectively ruled and effectively governed. And, and very specifically, you say, well, let's compare um, what has happened in the United States since 1979 to the present day, and let's compare what has happened in China since 1979 to the present day. Clearly, the rulers were picked in a very, very different process, or, or the, the people who became rulers uh, became rulers in a very, very uh, different process between the two. Um, and yet, if you were to ask the uh, the average American, or if you were to do an assessment, whether the average American uh, has a standard of living in, in the year 2013 
which is superior to that of 1979, relatively speaking. It's not clear what the answer is, but it's unequivocally clear what the answer is for the vast majority of people who are living in China. And so there's an objective case that could be made, independent of any other considerations, which may be very meritorious. There's an objective case that can be made that China has been better ruled, better governed, or at least uh, relatively better governed, at least from an economic perspective, than the United States has been over those time periods. Well, I think that's true. I mean, I don't think it's, um, I, mean, I think it's very difficult to tell how well a, a, a country has been governed from an economic point of view, and except retrospectively. Right. And there certainly are very drastic instabilities in the Chinese process and their formidable ecological costs of the way it's been done, as they were actually in the United States when it's been done there. <laughs> but. Uh, I mean, it is just true that the conditions of life of a very large proportion of the Chinese population have changed very dramatically indeed, and probably at a pace which has never occurred, well, certainly at a pace that's never occurred on the same scale before in human history. Um, I don't know, there may be one or two instances where the pace of change has been as fast as that, but they're, they're very few. And ne not, not never on scale, anything you know. vaguely resembling that scale. So the, the, the number of human lives which have been transformed by it is very much larger. Well, you can say, well, the United States has pursued um, <laughs> many other admirable purposes in this time and you know, has had some success in pursuing some of them. You have to be rather careful which ones you pick. But you could say, well, actually, the United. I think you could almost certainly say the United States' record in civil rights is superior to that of China. I, I think that would be a, a readily defensible judgment. There's plenty of um, sure. stuff on the other side of the balance. I mean, sure. all, you know, it's always been true, and after all, the United States is a slave society. China wasn't really a slave society. There were some slaves here and there different times, but it wasn't really a slave society. The United States was a slave society. That's not too good from a civil rights point of view. Um, and the aftermath of it has never been very good either. And um, a great deal that's happening now, uh, I mean, if you think of the aftermath as including the sort of um, ethnic composition of the prison population of the United States at the moment and the scale of the prison population in the United States at the moment, and sure, but the, sort of it, the modal experience of being in a United States prison. You have to say, well, actually, you have to have a very feeble conception of civil rights to think that these are actually realized for a very large number of Americans. So, even, but I, so I'm sure that's true. But even without, even without going there, even without making any, uh, any judgments on a relative scale with civil rights, one can, one can look back and say, how should the society have been structured for the long-term best interests of the citizenry in gross? So that, that includes some, some uh, egregious violations of civil rights, which should not have occurred and so forth. But when you're trying to, as you say, when you're, when you're trying to move forwards with the largest economic transformation on, in terms of scale in the history of mankind, um, for which there is no particular roadmap, it's what's, what's most important, really, at the end of the day, certainly on average, is, is whether or not one has achieved success, success or relative success as best as one could have, could have done. And, and, and I think, uh, as you said, the point is 
to be able to look at that on its own terms, to be able to say, were the, were the right decisions actually made? Were the right policies invoked? Did, did we move forwards in the most coherent way we could have possibly imagined doing, and what lessons we can learn from that? And not conflate this necessarily with this process of how the, how the leaders were, were actually chosen to begin with, because logically and independently, these things are actually two different. Not only are they two different things, but to some extent, that inhibits our ability to look objectively at the policies that were, that were implemented to begin with, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it does work better if you're trying to understand uh, how a society is doing politically, if you look at the consequences rather than if you look at the processes. You won't be able to see the processes very well, and you can see the consequences, some of them, very easily. So it's a much clearer picture. And it is the picture that matters. I mean, right. In a way, if the processes are very um, elaborate and very, um, very sort of seemly in appearance, but the consequences are very bad, that is not good. I mean, that's not a good political structure. The point of the, the ins political institutions isn't to look good. The point of in political institutions is to have good consequences. Right. Uh, I mean, there are ways in which um, the aspects of the law is actually a very important idea in, in, in this space. I mean, there are aspects of political institutions which are captured and probably only, uh, only potentially capturable through the idea of a law, which is actually observed and which does actually um, provide some, some range of definite guarantees. And it is a virtue of the United States Constitution and of the United States state that it was established with that idea at its center, not just of, of, of a set of um, legal documents, but at, at the center of a political project. And although you can't say that actually Alexander Hamilton cared much about that, uh, there were other people around at the time who were involved in, in, in designing what occurred, who were very centrally concerned with precisely that goal, and they had a remarkable degree of success. Um, We've spoken a fair amount about the United States, contemporary United States, historical United States, the project that is the United States, which is, of course, extremely important historically. It's, it's extremely important economically in, in today's society, culturally, what have you. But it could well be that one of the most salient countries to look at when one wants to look at the, the project and experience of democracy is not the United States at all, but is India, which, which uh, is sort of the largest democracy that exists today and is arguably a much more surprising development in terms of what they've been able to achieve in erecting a stable democratic regime that has lasted for a considerable period of time since independence in 1947. Um, in light of, of a tremendous diversity of languages and, and, and cultures and traditions and history. And um, I, wonder if we're not, I wonder if we're not missing something, or I wonder if most people aren't fully appreciating the fact that India should be just as much examined and, and just, as much, just as closely regarded 
uh, perhaps more so than the United States, when one, when one wants to consider what exactly democracy is and what effect it has had and whether it is working and whether it is not working. What is your particular view on, on uh, uh, are you astounded by, when you look back at the initial conditions, are you astounded by what has been achieved in, in India? Do you think that it is, that within India, if we look carefully, we'll find lessons for all sorts of, uh, all sorts of other people? Well, I certainly think if you look at India, you can see things about democracy as a, as a possible political structure, which are much more plausibly relevant to most of the world than what you see if you look inside the United States. The United States became what it now is under very, very privileged circumstances, which are dra dramatically unlike those that have obtained in almost all the rest of the world. And that has given uh, American, I think, political comprehension um, some very, very serious limitations because Americans don't perceive how far the more attractive features of their political arrangements have depended upon gifts of providence. Right. Um, and uh, I think if, if, you, if, you ask, uh, if you ask, I mean, what, what, what's really good about the United States uh, from a political and social imaginative point of view, um, and uh, what, where's that come from? It's a mistake to suppose that it's come from a set of very edifying ideas, principally. It's come from a set of, of remarkably favorable historical circumstances for those who won the sort of near exterminatory war for control of the, um, un the current United States landmass. Right. Um, so, I mean... Just, just, just if, I mean, you, you would... <laughs> you had mentioned uh, an obvious statement, but one which is, which is of course, uh, overlooked that you're, that, that you're referring to, which is the, the American democratic experience, uh, in hindsight, would have looked awfully different had, had the South won the Civil War. I mean, this is, this is an obvious... It would have looked condition. even more different if the Indians had defended their <laughs> land. <laughs> Quite a lot more different. But these are course, the other Indians, of course. These are the, the, yeah, the, 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 the Yes, the American version of the right. Indians. Um, <laughs> so, so, the ones but, that go with the cowboys. But I do want to go back to this point that you were making about India and the fact that it may be more germane for the, for the, for the rest of the world because the, American, uh, the, American, the circumstances that gave rise to the American experiment were so unique and, and were so propitious in, in, in many ways, whereas... Uh, I suppose it could be argued that India was also very fortunate in, in, the, in, in the choice of its leaders at the time of independence, who were particularly uh, cultivated, cultivated, thoughtful, uh, and able individuals. But, um, but given, given the sheer complexities of the place, it's really a wonder that, that, that a democratic regime can be as stable and can be as, by and large, not to say that it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but by and large as effective as, uh, as it has been, it seems to me. Well, I think there are several things you can say about the, uh, the Indian version of democracy. One is that it shows that this, this picture of how political relations can be structured um, can be realized under 
a very wide range of conditions given enough luck. And that uh, once it begins to be realized, it can actually build up its own support base. I mean, democracy can be dismantled anywhere in principle. It would probably be harder to dismantle it frontally in the United States than most other places, but it could be dismantled anywhere. But it is very striking if you look at um, South Asia, it's very striking that it hasn't been dismantled mm -hmm. in India, really. I mean, it has been pretty effectively dismantled in Pakistan. It sort of comes and goes, but it more goes than comes. Um, it's been certainly very um, roughed up in Bangladesh, and it's um, taken a pretty horrendous form in the last 15 or 20 years in Sri Lanka. Um, there's a lot of, in many ways, India is a horrible society and it's, um, it's full of cruelty and uh, ugliness. Um, and of course, it's in one society if you think about it that way. But I mean, what we think of as India, let's say the current Indian state, I mean, is not a, a pretty human picture. It's, it has a very, very deep imaginative background in, in which, uh, which, in a way, sort of differentiates people um, by value and by dignity. Um, and it's very, in that sense, very drastically inegalitarian, hierarchical. Um, so you would think that a country, and actually political scientists at the time mostly did think, you would think a country that poor and that big can't actually have representative democratic institutions which it will be able to keep. And, and yeah. driven by such a stand, uh, historical class structure. And you would think that, that the, the, the society itself repels the idea of political equality. Um, and of course, the society itself, in many respects, does repel the idea of political equality by what it is and how it lives. But it doesn't, it doesn't um, just succeed in repelling it. The state structure is formally a structure of political equality, and its institutional forms realize the primal um, act of uh, political choice, which is available in representative democracies, it realizes the free and equal vote. I would say, um, as a result of a lot of practice and a lot of intelligence we put into the practice and a bit of uh, historical good luck in the way the Constitution was drafted, it, it realizes it with a fidelity and comprehensiveness that is certainly not matched by the United States of America or the United Kingdom. I mean, Indian electoral processes from the point of view of the Indian state are run to an astonishingly high level. And that is definitely not true of the electoral processes of the United States or the United Kingdom. There's some very conspicuous recent examples that drawn to wide attention. Um, and then it's, it, it's <laughs> The British and um, American versions don't realize it to the same extent because they haven't really tried to. And they certainly haven't tried it over anything like the same time and with anything like the same degree of commitment. So, of course, they haven't succeeded. Um, now, that shows, it shows, first of all, that you can actually build a state 
which has at least this aspect of democracy very fully realized in a very, very poor country. You need some facilities to build it through, mm -hmm. but it can be done because it has been done. And every time there's an Indian national election, I mean, there's the largest, broadly speaking, free electoral choice there's ever been in human history. So that's quite something. But there's something else which is also terribly important, which is that although this, or in my view, terribly important, um, I mean, that's a very politically vexed judgment, and I, obviously there are lots of people oh, who disagree ahead. with me. Oh, go ahead. But in my view, it's very important indeed that in India, through the way in which the legal structure of the state was established, and through the political processes that have worked through this representative and in the last instance, egalitarianly representative political structure, there has been a, a, a relatively steady erosion of the, 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 the ugliest uh, and forms of, um, of social hierarchy. I mean, the caste structure has been politically weakened through democratic institutions and through the development of public law as a result of, of electoral decisions, legislative decisions based on electoral decisions. And that is a, a definitely, a, in my view, a, a process of political correction of some of the worst features of India. You can see it in different ways and you can take a different view about that, but I think that is a very considerable achievement politically. And I think that um, it is owed to democracy. It isn't owed just to the idea of democracy, but it's owed to the extent to which the idea of democracy has been realized, at least through the electoral structure in India. I mean, all sorts of other stuff has gone on, and sure. it's going on all the time. Sure. And some of the other stuff is very grim. It's, it's less, less unequivocally caused. But, but I, I mean, there are no places where what goes on politically is just unequivocally positive. I mean, that's not what sure. humans are like. It's not what human choices are like on grow, and it's not um, what happens inside the structuring of political institutions. I mean, very other things happen in those, but. But still, the point of trying to, trying to make political institutions which achieve good consequences is that they should make those good consequences likelier. And actually, there have been some good consequences of the way Indian democracy has worked, and they are attributable to its being, to that degree, democratic. So there are great achievements in that story. Another very positive, I would think, uh, an obviously inspirational aspect of what most people mean by democracy is <coughs> this ability to act in opposition to tyranny, to act in opposition to autocracy, to throw the bums out, to overthrow oppressive regimes that were, that were imposed on, the, on, on, uh, on people. And of course, we've seen the recent manifestation of this in the Arab Spring. Um, and you point out that one of the singularly great appeals of democracy is actually to work, at least certainly in the initial stages, is to act very much as 
uh, as I've described, in opposition to something. And perhaps the most seductive aspect of, of, of democracy, naturally seductive and, and nearly unequivocally positive and inspirational even, is this notion of being able to rise up as a collective voice and overthrow tyranny, overthrow autocracy, overthrow oppressive regimes, as we've seen before. The difficulty, of course, is that once one has done that, um, it's a rather different kettle of fish, it seems to me, to actually move forward and establish these very, these very institutions that you're talking about now. It seems like, uh, briefly put, from, again, from my, my perspective or the perspective of a, of a non-specialist, when, when we hear the word democracy, and we, we would hear two words, democracy and inspiration, or democracy and, and, and oppression, for example, what would be the images that would be, that, that would, that would be brought to my mind? Well, there'd be this sense of what happened in Tunisia, and what happened in, in Egypt, and what happened in, in all places where people were, were, perhaps what happened in the Ukraine to some extent, maybe that's a little bit different, but this notion of the people rising up and fighting off their oppressors, which, is, which can be very inspirational and, and uh, certainly something that one would like to be emulated throughout the world, an unequivocally positive thing. The difficulty is, of course, what comes after that? Well, I think that the idea of being able to stop yourself being ruled odiously and harmfully that is an idea which has an overwhelming political appeal to any possible human population. Um, and democracy, if, if it is realized in the institutional forms that, that uh, we have around here, democracy does at least guarantee that sooner or later you will be able to do that. You will be able to stop yourself being ruled by people that you see as as sure. intolerable. You can throw the rules. bugs out. And, and I, I think that um, the, the appeal of that is essentially the same as the appeal of overthrowing an autocratic regime. But of course the aftermath of it is more promising in what we think of as a, as a democracy because it, it, at least the aftermath will also in, include the outcome of the choice, the choice by the majority of the population of other people. Right. If you overthrow an autocratic regime, it's anyone's guess what the outcome is going to be, and pretty much anyone's guess what institutional structures the outcome is going to emerge from. It may emerge from the um, army HQ, it may emerge, I'm not sure if this is quite true, but you, you could think of it this way in, in Iran, it might emerge from um, religious seminaries, it might emerge from um, all sorts of places, but, but um, you can't have any degree of rational confidence in its emerging from somewhere that you want it to emerge from. I mean, there isn't any basis at all for being confident that it will emerge from somewhere desirable. And, I think the simple and um, intuitively very powerful merit of representative democracy in its Western form is that it's a strongly institutionalized and therefore strongly institutionalizable way of ensuring that opportunity. I think that's a very good opportunity to have and it's, it, it, sooner or later if you don't have it, 
you're going to wish very much you did have it, and it's going to be potentially very expensive to try to get it. So democracy is better than um, it's better than revolution because revolution is very dangerous and erratic and extremely likely to end more in tears than in joy. Democracy isn't very likely to end in joy either, but it, but it's, it, it gives a joy a better chance. So if I'm an objective observer... Sorry. Just rustling in your, your sweater there. Thanks for specialist who's listening to this and I see here is Professor Dunn. He's a very knowledgeable fellow. He's a very deep fellow. He's thought very deeply about these, these ideas about how societies should be ruled and the institutions um, uh, of which uh, our society should be comprised and how they can be measured and judged and are they efficient and are they not efficient. And he cares about uh, these long-term uh, structural issues about society. Um, I, I have the good fortune to, uh, to live in a democracy, and I recognize that it's not perfect. I recognize that there are all sorts of uh, there are definitional ideas, that the example of the democracy that I live in today is not the same, perhaps, as it was historically, that over time the word has evolved, concepts have evolved, and so forth and so on. That's all very interesting. But what should I do about this? What should I, how is it really relevant to me in my life as, a, as, as somebody who is an average uh, taxpayer in, uh, in Birmingham or in, uh, or in Calcutta or, or, in, uh, or in Minneapolis? This is, all, this is, is this more than just an abstruse academic exercise to look at, at the way power is developed and, and political theory is advanced and so forth and so on? As an average citizen of the earth, what, uh, of what real relevance is it to me, and what can I do about it? Well, it's relevant to you because it's part of what's caused the setting in which you live and uh, a lot of the features of that setting. So it's, you know, it's relevant explanatorily. If you want to understand what has been going on in your life, you actually need to understand some of this. You won't understand it unless you do. Um, now, lots of people don't particularly want to understand what's been going on in the setting of their life because they're, in a sense, fine with their life. If you have nothing but, um, I mean, if you're, if you're very happy with your circumstances um, and you don't particularly care about anything beyond your circumstances, then I don't think you do have a good reason to want to fathom all this. It's not that easy to fathom. You won't completely succeed in fathoming it, and it won't show you how to transform your circumstances for the better. Um, but it depends on what you do care about and on what you... It depends a great deal on how bad the consequences of the way you're being governed at the time are. So you have to think in two different directions to see what all this is about. 
you have to see, first of all, that actually a very larger proportion of what is going on in the world of the societies we live in is dangerous and probably very destructive, very damaging. You have to see a very great deal of bad is being done all the time and that that bad will certainly affect, um, might just about not affect you badly in the course of your life. And I, I have a reasonably good chance of not being badly affected by it at all myself because I'm old enough, but it will certainly affect your children or your grandchildren or great-grandchildren and so on. It will affect lots and lots of people. Um, and if you don't care about other people, you don't need to worry sure, about them. Sure, you don't care about you, other But people. if you do care about them, then you can't think about what to try to bring about. Um, and you can't think about, I mean, who, in a sense, you could um, ally with and try to improve the outcomes with. You can't think politically at all. You're completely politically impotent. It's fine entirely selfishly uh, if you, to be completely politically impotent if in fact every, you're delighted with every feature of your own life and you don't care about anyone else's. I mean, the less uh, you know, and probably you don't live for very long, but if you, if, if you alter any of those conditions, you're into a space in which it will matter quite a lot, potentially, if what's happening is very bad. It will matter whether or not you understand that it's happening, because of course you can't do anything about it unless you understand what's happening. And of course you won't be able to do much about it if only you understand what's happening. Well, These are political processes. They involve a, a very large number of people. And the, my preoccupation is, in a way, with the question of how it's possible to show people what is happening so that they can decide for themselves what to do about it. I mean, they may well decide to do nothing about it for yeah. one reason or another, but still they can't decide unless they can see. Sure, so that's a necessary first step. It's necessary to, to get an appreciation of what the problem is, not to be overly simplistic, but it's necessary to understand what the problem is and what the issues are before one goes about trying to actually deal with the problems and the issues. But do you have any... Um, do you have any sense of a possible clear prescription? So, so I, don't, I don't mean to be overly combative, but why should I care if I'm, uh, if I'm sitting on my couch in Minneapolis? And maybe I shouldn't care, as you say, if my life is going particularly well. And I re realize that your, your goal is not to, uh, not to instill terror in the hearts of everyone <laughs> throughout society, that they should be overly concerned with, uh, uh, with, with a process that they're not particularly uh, motivated to care about. Um, but more to the point that... There, there's a formula which I think helps to think about these things because it wakes one up a bit, which comes from an Italian novel, um, <coughs> sorry, called The Leopard, which is about Ancien Regime Sicily and the end, and, and uh, sort of Garibaldi, and, you know, the arrival of Italy, um, in, in which the, the hero um, says who's a grandee, says, if things are going to stay as they are, 
things will have to change. <laughs> and that is the central political insight. This is not, the, it is not safe for most people unless they care about very little beyond themselves and they don't care about much future time. It's not safe to be where they are. What is happening is almost always, in many ways, very bad from their point of view. And they can't actually think about what can be done about that unless they think about the political position in which they're situated and what can and can't be done politically through the structures which actually define that position. If you don't understand politics, you can't have any coherent conception of how the immense damage that human beings have done to the planet on which they live can be brought under minimal control within the foreseeable human future. And if it isn't, then there won't be good human lives in a few hundred years almost certainly. They just won't be able to be. There are people who think, well, you don't need to worry about these things because we have a, a, a reliable, magical secret which will sort out the chaos we make. Um, and that sort of idea, which is quite an old idea, actually, um, has, um, has different sort of modern representatives. There are people who think, well, we have the magic of the market, that sorts everything out in the end. Well, look around. Or they say, well, you know, we have science. That really does fix things. Mm -hmm. You know, the market looks a bit dodgy, especially after the end of 2008. I mean, it doesn't look so, doesn't look so reassuring any longer. Maybe it's a bit treacherous. Maybe, actually, nobody understands what the hell is going on in it. That's certainly true. Um, but they say, well, we have science. I mean, that, that is constituted out of comprehension. The market perhaps isn't, isn't the, the theory of the market, sort of in the reigning theory of the market at the beginning of 2007, was the market has perfect comprehension, and it works through its perfect comprehension. Maybe it does. Maybe it's just malicious. Anyway, sorry. Well, that, that's, 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 as it were, the economic equivalent of natural theology as read by David Hume. <laughs> Perhaps, actually, the world was invented by a completely incompetent and rather malicious deity. <laughs> you know, or, and you can explain the, the variance through increasing the level of malice, or you can explain the variance by increasing the level of incompetence. But you can't explain the horrible mess of the way the world is through the idea that it's all caused by an omnipotent and benevolent creator. That idea crashes if you think it could. <laughs> well, you know, the market's just like that. It's like natural theology. You, you, can, you can have what it does, or you can have a pretty story about it. But, but I want to get back to, to one of the things which, which uh, as a non-specialist, intrigued me is I have, I have often been infuriated by the simplistic talk of democracy, George Bush going to war to, 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 
to bring democracy to the poor, oppressed people of Iraq and America spreading its wings. And it's, it's, so, it's so obviously superficial to a large extent, and, and to a large extent it's so obviously wrong, which is not to say that, that I am an elitist snob myself or don't believe that, that popular votes should count in elections or anything like that. But as a non-specialist, I am somebody who um, was very gratified when I, saw it, when I saw your books because it was clear that somebody was actually not only taking these ideas very seriously, but writing about them for the, for the, popular, um, for the popular audience. And hearing you speak very passionately about our need to understand the problems that are confronting our societies, uh, the need to be able to judge better, the need to be able to learn from our mistakes, the need to be able to make some progress, to be able to change so that we can stay the same, as it were. Um, it seems to me that this should be a common, uh, some, it should be a relatively popular theme or common theme within the discipline of political science and political theory. Is this the sort of thing that many of your colleagues are talking about? Are they examining democracy uh, with a fine-tooth comb, or are they are they are they looking at it in with the same level of judgment and and keenness that you are, or are you a bit of an outlier when it comes to this sort of thing? And why, if you are? Well, I think the the sense in which I am a bit of an outlier is is um, largely a matter really of arrogance. I mean, I I I have tried to understand what has been happening through this word and this loosely conceived idea um, as a single process through time. And I don't think that has really, I mean, there are a few other people who have tried to, but, but they've been sufficiently unsuccessful in doing so that it doesn't really matter whether they've tried to. Um, but um, it, it, it's eccentric to try to do anything which is sort of as obviously beyond the reach of any person as that. And it's not well regarded in academic circles to try to do something which you're certainly not going to succeed in. I mean, you're supposed to you know, have a grip and you're supposed to succeed in what you do, and you're supposed to show that you have succeeded incontrovertibly to you know, a sure. professional audience who will you know, prefer to be able to show that you've snuffed it. So, I mean, it's not the way in which to build a solid academic career to do the sort of thing which I've been doing, and I started doing it to be even minimally frank, after I didn't need to build a career. I mean, it was sort of built and I could do what I liked. I did it because I thought it was very interesting and increasingly interesting as I did it, and that it was obviously important what was true about it and that what actually turned out to be true about it was very disconcertingly different from the way people uh, normally see it and speak about it. But I mean, most academics who work on politics, on political theory, on political philosophy, um, on political sociology, they work on what they think of as well-defined questions, and they provide robust and compelling answers, and this is their view, to these well-defined questions. Now, in order to be able to do that with political stuff, in a way, you have to pull a long way back from the world. And my general intuitive judgment is that if you pull a long way back from the world of politics, you just lose politics. It's gone. But what's and the point of what it is that you're doing then? I mean, what, what, why, why should you? Why do you necessarily have to pull a long way back from the world in political science? I, I don't. I don't. I don't understand why that's. You, you want to have an idealized case. 
and so forth. But surely the, 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 the text of what it is that you're doing should be all about the world. It should have something meaningful to say about political systems and, and, and the world as we find it. Otherwise, it just becomes some abstract, some abstract academic uh, in self-indulgence, right? Well, I, yes. I mean, of course, the academics wouldn't say that what's going on is self-indulgence. They, 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 they would say it's exercising, <laughs> demonstrating professional competence to a potentially uh, adversarial audience. And after all, that's the way science works. I mean, you no, do... no, science describes the world. It doesn't just, just demonst demonstrate professional competence. I mean, you could have professional competence. Oh, well, you see, political weeks. scientists describe the world, but they pick Not the, the political world. They well, that's my point. <laughs> they describe what are specifiable bits of the political world, and they describe them in terms in which it's going to be very difficult to show that they've misdescribed them. But in order to do that, they have to stop asking a great many questions about politics. They have to define a potentially controllable subject matter, which is... Um, in its defined form, which is unproblematically there. Now, once you define something which is unproblematically there politically, you, you will have lost politics. Sure. Because politics is, is in the, um, the dynamism and unobviousness of what is actually there. It's in the chaotic character of human interaction. And you can't capture that through, you know, scientifically... Um, robust instrumentation. The idea of scientifically robust instrumentation and the idea of capturing politics just aren't reconcilable with one another. And what has happened in the history of political science, the professionalization of political science, is that a very large majority of those who do political science, even if they're actually very acute about politics in sort of private life, um, and can talk very well about it, you know, on the, the things they know about. But what they've ended up doing professionally is actually not to do, talk very well about politics, but to talk about politics in a way which is not subject to professional criticism. So they, they've taken up what's actually a very defensive posture, and a defensive posture, which is, you know, quite strongly prudentially reinforced. Um, but, and they've um, adjusted to that. I think they don't recognize, I mean, most of them don't really recognize the costs they've incurred by doing so. It seems like the, those costs are enormous. Again, from my perspective, I'm not a... Well, they're much higher from the point of view of those who aren't political scientists or well, political theorists well, than they are for those who are, because those who are have, uh, in a sense, already, um, I mean, budgeted for the costs. I mean, they, they you know, they, that, that they, in some sense, you could say they've embraced the costs. I think that's quite fair, actually. It doesn't sound terribly plausible psychologically, but I think that is a good description of what occurs over time. But, uh, but if you take the average person uh, on the street, if you start asking these broader questions about what, what are we really doing? What, what is a mathematician doing? What is a political theorist? What, why do we have universities? What, what is research? What, what are we actually involved in? You can compare, uh, from this perspective, you can, one can compare a political a uh, scientist with a mathematician. A mathematician is doing work within a very abstract domain 
which has no direct relevance on, on, on whole. Let's not talk about an applied mathematician, a pure mathematician that has, it, from an acknowledged perspective, no direct relevance whatsoever on human societies or the human condition and is entirely rigorous. On the other side, it seems to me, you have the political theorist who is supposed to, so correct me if I'm wrong, but from, on the other side, you have the political theorist who is uh, discussing things that have overwhelming import to the human condition that most people are very, very uh, concerned with and conscious of, namely political societies and how they're structured and how they might be structured and how they should be structured, and is necessarily, I think, very nebulous and very and very vague, not rigorous at all. It's completely unrigorous. So it seems to me you have those two different, uh, those, those two different situations. And when you're talking about something like democracy, whether democracy has actually been effective and efficient and, and, and to enlighten the people who are at the end of the day, the ones who are involved in the decision procedure of, of choosing governments uh, to, to, to let them know, hey, we're not actually understanding what we should be doing in the right way. We should be thinking more carefully about how we judge. We, we should be being clearer about what our frames of reference are, what our terms of reference are, how we should be moving forwards. It seems to me this is of overwhelming import. I mean, I guess that's my sense of frustration. We're not just playing some academic game. We're, 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 we're actually talking about real people and real societies and real judgments and how to actually make the world a better place. You talk about ecological catastrophes that we have to avoid or at least do our best to minimize. We, we, have, we have massive levels of people who we have to consider uh, elevating from dire poverty. I mean, these are, these are real issues that are of import to everyone around us. And, and I'm hoping as someone who is a non-specialist, the people at universities who are doing research in political theory and political science are thinking somewhat deeply about these issues and trying to add constructive uh, comments and criticisms and theories so that they can positively influence the way society is done. If I, if I have the view that, well, at the end of the day, they're just playing some self-consistent, self-referential game where they can, they, they can publish papers and get these papers uh, judged by fellow uh, colleagues based upon internal sets of criteria and so forth and so on. That seems like a bit of a waste of time to me. Well, I think it is rather a waste of time myself, and I also think it's a waste of money. You know, because it, you, I mean, if you say, what, who needs political science departments? Well, obviously, political scientists need political <laughs> science departments. But it isn't unequivocally clear in the case of most political science departments that anyone else actually needs them. And I, I think that that's definitely wrong. I mean, the, the fact is people do need exactly. political comprehension. Exactly. And the, the crippling um, demerit of the way in which political science has been institutionalized over time is that it, most of it doesn't provide much political comprehension. And even if you take, as it were, all the best bits of it and you somehow juxtapose them, you don't end up with a very high level of political comprehension because there's no there's no sort of synoptic capability in that juxtaposition because there's no synoptic effort. <laughs> Nobody tries to set to answer what, after all, in, in the end is the primary question. I'm sure, in a sense, it's the question that physicists must be struggling with, which is what the hell is really going on, um, and why is it going on, and how can we affect it? Yes. Well, you, you, you aren't going to be able to affect it in any way you want to if you don't know what it really is and you don't understand why it is. I mean, you have to do, get to those 
to get to the other. There isn't a way to the other without going through those. That's what I wanted to hear. Thank you very much, John. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Politics, along with separate discussions with Jacques Bertrand, Mark Bevere, Michael Fraser, and Josiah Olber. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.